as usual, this episode contains a lot of racism because it's U.S. history. I just wanted to give everyone a heads up that this one could be particularly painful. Now, here's the show. On this season, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past we can find in the present. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. He was moved to a larger cage that was now littered with bones to suggest that he was a cannibal. We Monsters come from the dark parts. They rise up from the depths of mysterious lakes and seas. They haunt our swamps and forests and live in the shadowy cruelty that we are all capable of. I started out with the expectation of this being a more fun episode, a look at the local monsters of different American regions and why they showed up when they did. This one will be fun, I thought. We'd have a chill time talking about Bigfoot and the Chippecabra, the Mothman, and Skinwalkers. But after reading from W. Scott Poole's amazing book, Monsters in America, I knew I had a more important and difficult path to take. I quickly became far more interested in how the ideas and language of the monstrous, as we explored in season one in our episode on drugs, has been used as a tool throughout American history to paint our social others as dangerous and justify America's specific kind of ignorant brutality. I encourage you to listen to our episode on drugs if you haven't already, because I feel like this is a companion piece. We'll see how the monstrous is connected to the animalistic, so much so that they almost became interchangeable. We'll follow the tales told by slave owners to scare the enslaved into behaving, and we'll see how black folks were, especially those involved in anti-slavery activism and revolt, turned into monsters, with Mary Shelley's wildly popular novel Frankenstein and its Depression-era movie version serving as popular metaphors for pro-slavery writers. We'll also talk about the real-life racial sideshow freaks that were a direct response to the theory of evolution, the terror that white people were not a holy species, but descended from monkeys, from the uncontrollable natural world. We'll see how social Darwinism promoted the idea of the missing link between humans and apes, painting Africans as not quite human, not quite animal. The qualities of the monstrous have bolstered the idea that there is a potentially pure human state that we can strive toward to control the natural world. Both the animals that are monsters hidden and waiting to strike and the people that threaten the power of white Protestant America that they considered savage animals. And we'll see why we are biologically programmed to fear monsters and how that instinct has been reapplied to our social others into something to both fear and to tame. The Puritans came to the land that would be called America expecting monsters. Monsters in the form of unseen, mysterious, and likely dangerous animals. They expected monsters, too, in the forms of tribal members who were told in tall tales to be kidnappers and infant blood drinkers. 
monsters that hid in the shadows of the forests. We know the early explorers who were looking for gold expected monsters too, as they stepped out into an enormous, twisted wilderness, a place one could only describe as sublime, that feeling you get when you experience the terrifying beauty of colossal nature, the humbling gasp of our own insignificance. But this insignificance did not humble the new Americans. Instead, it led to what amounted to a long-term project of getting rid of the natural, of pushing nature out to the boundaries of our world, the dark parts. As the slave trade populated America with African men, women, and children, white America faced yet another racial and cultural other, one considered only partially human, And, just like the natural world, we sought to control these Africans, to train them into docile workers that would grow this country into power and prosperity without Protestant America having to do it themselves. Southern newspapers painted slaves again and again as jungle savages, as monstrous animal beasts, and even witches who mixed chicken blood with the dirt of graves and drank a toast to killing every white man, woman, and child. Once slavery was deeply embedded in America's culture and economy, monsters, as they have long been used in stories to scare children into behaving, so too were they used for a much more insidious kind of control. Stories were told of a monster that lived in the swamps of the American South, most specifically Florida, one known to have a large horn coming from its back as sharp as a knife. It was amphibious, huge, violent, and they called it the Snollygoster. The swamps of the South were a go-to for black people escaping their enslavement, and stories of runaway slaves found impaled on what looked like a cypress tree, but in fact was the horn of the Snollygoster, were told often. One plantation owner, worried that the slaves were planning a revolt, actually dressed up as a kind of devil creature Snollygoster knockoff, his costume outfitted with actual mechanics to make parts of it move on their own. And he showed up at meetings that black folks were attending with white allies, looking to both encourage their submission and also paint themselves, the slave owners, as less monstrous than what could be waiting in the shadows of their freedom. The monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Throughout our history, American culture has formed partially through the arts, with novels and eventually movies handing us metaphors to apply to the social conditions around race, to be applied to both pro-slavery writers and abolitionists. Mary Shelley's 1831 reprint of her novel Frankenstein just so happened to come during the same year as the most famous slave revolt in history— one organized by Nat Turner in Southampton, Virginia, one that would see a dozen slaves kill 60 white people. Nat Turner was able to escape the police for weeks as his story grew mythological. He was eventually captured by authorities and promptly tried and hanged. During the hunt for him and after his death, he was compared again and again in the papers to the Frankenstein monster. Slaves again were being described as dangerous, bloodthirsty, almost humans, finally with a monstrous strength breaking from their bondage. 
An illustrator in 1862 created an image for Vanity Fair called, quote, Frankenstein, a glimpse of the fate in store for Jeff Davis at the hands of the Monster Rebellion, and showed a plantation owner lifted over the head of a large black man, a crown slipping from his white head, about to be thrown over a cliff. Nat easily became a monster of legend that disguised what he was actually fighting for under a fear that he was coming for innocent women and children. In his defense of slavery, politician Thomas Dew also invoked the Frankenstein monster, writing that, quote, To turn a Negro loose would be to raise a creature resembling the splendid fiction of a recent romance, the hero of which constructs a human form with all the physical capabilities of man, but finds too late that he has only created a more-than-mortal power of doing mischief and himself recoils from the monster he has made. But the story also demonstrated the sweet and childlike side to the monster, a similar story of sweetness to the story that had long clouded the true horrors of slave life for most of white America. The manufactured revisionist dream of slavery told of the sugary harmony of the plantation, the smiles of slaves and their children as they happily worked in the fields for their room and board, whistling with joy over their place in the world. The truth, of course, as Nat Turner and millions of other enslaved people knew, was quite different than the story America told. To them, it was like the once safe and tamed Frankenstein monster had finally broken from his chains. But America's racial others were not just considered monsters in metaphor. They were also shown as literal monsters that were somewhere between the civilized human and the animal worlds. As the popularity of the circus sideshow began to rise with P.T. Barnum's brand of sensational strangeness, we also see the rise of actual human zoos that displayed exotic races as animal monsters from faraway lands, much of which was a social reaction to the theory of evolution by Darwin that rocked the foundations of American psychology. There was a certain terror inspired in the white imagination when Charles Darwin's theory of evolution demonstrated that humans weren't divinely separated from the animal kingdom, but had, in fact, all evolved from apes. Coming just six years before the end of the Civil War, this book threatened the assumed divinity of white Protestant America, the idea that they were God's chosen people, taking what they wanted to further their right to biblical supremacy. Again, instead of being humbled by this commonality with other races, white folks looked toward Darwin's other assertion that non-white people were of a lower order than civilized whites. And then we saw the rise of social Darwinism. It was a survival of the fittest theory that applied to people of color as well as those with disabilities that would lead us into the early eugenics movement at the turn of the century, with white people believing that they needed to keep their race pure and strong. Only a few years after the legal abolition of slavery, Darwin published another book called On the Origin of the Species and the Descent of Man, in which he too embraced the idea that Africans and non-white races fell somewhere in between man and ape, and white culture, happy to be separated from what they considered the vileness of nature and animals, loved the idea of a missing link, the subhuman category that allowed them to continue to dehumanize under Jim Crow laws that haunted the lives of free black people. 
Shortly before, P.T. Barnum's sideshows had been shaking America with his very first success, a purported real-life mermaid he called the Fiji Mermaid, which in reality was made of a taxidermy monkey and a big fish, and for some reason it had breasts. This led to more and more animal abnormalities put on display, like cows with three eyes and sheep with three eyes and snakes with two heads. These proved so popular that Barnum had the idea to hire people with physical disabilities and abnormalities to travel with his show, who, as we all know, he lovingly referred to as freaks. As the tradition went on, these freak shows continued to hum behind a movement towards social purity and racial purity, helping to lend public support for eugenics, for eradicating those who were considered a lower order, leading to the sterilization of people with disabilities as well as black and indigenous women. Sideshows that followed in the profitable footsteps of Barnum began playing more and more on the idea of the racially monstrous, advertising those called, quote, cannibals, heathens, pagans, fire worshippers, and other strange races. An advertisement for a national history exhibit at the American Museum said of an African man, quote, what is it? Is it a lower order of man, or is it a higher development of the monkey, or is it both in combination? William Henry Johnson, a black child born in New Jersey, was bought at four years old and eventually fell into the hands of Barnum. He shaved his head except for a small tuft on the top and then exhibited him in a fur suit, directing him to grunt like a gorilla would. Barnum claimed that he was, quote, found during a gorilla hunting expedition near the Gambia River in western Africa and was a member of a, quote, naked race of men traveling about by climbing on tree branches. Throughout his life, they called him Zip, but the show was so popular and the line was so often repeated that William was known famously by the name, What Is It? In one of hundreds of other examples, the 1904 World's Fair and then later the Bronx Zoo held a Central African man of the Batwa people called Ata Benga and displayed him in the zoo's monkey house. He was found by a Presbyterian missionary and anthropologist named Samuel Phillips Verner, who then took him back to Virginia, where the zoo claimed he was a cannibal, and people paid five cents to see his teeth, which had been sharpened to small points in a tribal ritual. He too was called a racial freak and an African blood-hungry monster, and it was implied too that he was the missing link. He was kept in a cage alongside an orangutan who could ride a bicycle and sit at a table. Zookeepers made sure to scatter bones all over the floor of Otta's cage and made him run at the patrons and bare his teeth, eliciting excited and terrified screams from white children and their parents alike. Pamela Newkirk has written an astonishing and heartbreaking book, Spectacle, The Astonishing Life of Otta Benga. He was being portrayed as a cannibal, as, as some, like a monster. These are people who, who depicted him that way, and there was no reason to question their, their view of him. Right, right. They and were he was scientists. really a, a savage. He was a savage. That's what they said about him. Otto was eventually released after black congregations petitioned the mayor and was given American clothing and caps for his teeth in order to help him fit into the local area. Otto wanted to return to his home and his Batwa community, but when World War I began in 1914, passenger travel by ship was completely halted. Deeply depressed, Otto, at the age of 32, built a ceremonial fire, chipped the caps off his teeth, 
and shot himself in the heart. At the same time that these racial freaks were drawing crowds by the thousands, folklore and reality began to mingle together to form a strange and bigoted urban legend, or maybe I should say a rural legend, a large mixed-race community of free people of color in the Appalachian Mountains was used by parents and caregivers as a kind of boogeyman to scare children into behaving, or else the Melungeons will get you. The lore stated that the Melungeons have got six fingers on each hand, they grab mean little chillum and carry them off to their caves in the cliffs outside of town. After the Civil War ended, the Melungeons were frequently accused of raiding white settlements and killing children, stories that mirrored those of the savage natives that once kept white children in line, that kept white children looking under their beds for people of color that wanted to take them away into the shadows of the hills. An 1889 article by an anthropologist named S.M. Burnett described his childhood fear as follows. Legends of the Melungeons I first heard at my father's knee as a child in the mountains of eastern Tennessee. And the name had such a ponderous and inhuman sound as to associate them in my mind with the giants and ogres of the wonder tales I listened to in the winter evenings. I shrank under the bedclothes, trembling with a fear that was almost an expectation that one of these huge creatures would come down the chimney with a rush, seize me with his dragon-like arms, and carry me off to his cave in the mountains, there to devour me piecemeal. Stories were told of the Melungeons' grandmothers skittering across the hills in the style of deliverance and then watching over secret rites spoken over graves and unknown tongues. Rumors abounded about this group for years and years, with white people unable to categorize them into the legal racial order, some able to pass as white enough to vote and own land, and others put into the category of free people of color, having no rights to land or to voting. But most white people considered them mulatto, an outdated term meaning mixed race, specifically black and white. This ambiguity led to a Darwinian fear of genetic mixing and the lower order, animalistic, even monstrous humans infecting the purity of the white race, sometimes even hiding in plain sight, passing themselves off as white, nonetheless poor and living in the hills, again in the shadows of the world. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your 
your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week. And you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now, back to the show. As America slumped into the Great Depression, popular culture took to horror movies as a way to express this economic anxiety in a nation where emotional reactions were severely repressed. Art gives language and image to what we have difficulty expressing ourselves, acting as our modern folklore stories which we can apply to real-world issues. The 1931 film version of Frankenstein and the following 1935 Bride of Frankenstein again acted as potent metaphors for the changing race relations of the time and the nervousness white America was feeling as white women hung out in jazz clubs and smoked weed with black jazz musicians as black popular culture began to infiltrate young white consciousness. At the same time, the NAACP's 1935 National Anti-Lynching Bill was yet again rejected. The Frankenstein monster in both films is chased by an angry mob of all-white townspeople, following with angry dogs, flaming torches, loud condemnations, all hallmark images of the thousands of lynchings that were being carried out. I'm ready! Light your torches and go! One newspaper reported an instance of fiction and reality mixing in a horrifying image. Quote, the lynching site was located across the street from a picture show where a horror film was playing. A number of women from the theater saw the Negro hanging from the tree and fainted. In one of the most famous scenes in history before the angry mob shows up, the Frankenstein monster is seen interacting with a young white girl who offers to play with him and innocently hands him a flower. The two toss their flowers into a pond until the monster, without understanding what he's doing, throws her into the pond and she drowns. In the scene, the Frankenstein monster is simple-minded, uneducated, unaware, but sweet, not evil. In The Bride of Frankenstein, we see the formation of a corresponding kind of liberal narrative of saviorism, of colorblindness. Who is it? You're welcome, my friend, whoever you are. I cannot see you. I cannot see anything. You must please excuse me, but I'm blind. 
It's a literal blind man that is able to show the creature empathy, teach the monster manners, teach the monster to read. The film easily became what it was likely meant to be, a tolerance parable that made social others no longer monstrous, but in need of a savior to assimilate him into the human world. The monster is seen as a sympathetic victim as the townspeople string him up in an image that reminds one of lynching. The final shot settling on a crucifix around his neck, leaving the audience with the impression that this monster is full of a beautiful kind of innocence. There's this feeling that the monster is feeble-minded and in need of constant help and pity. Essentially, still, the monster is tamed into a kind of not-quite-human humanity, one that requires the help of a savior who, through the kindness of their good hearts, can transform monsters into functioning American men. Of course, there's local lore from every state in the country of regionally specific monsters like the Mothman, Chupacabra, and Bigfoot, but these quaint, more recent monsters hardly resemble the monsters of America's past. But sometimes these legends blur together with a coded prejudice that I can only assume comes from the stuff we've been talking about. Take the legend of the skunk ape of Florida. Numerous sightings of the skunk ape were reported in Dade County, Florida in 1974 and 1975. In January 1974, an article in the Miami Democrat quoted resident Richard Smith, who described hitting with his car what he thought was a, quote, furry naked black man about eight feet tall. It jumped out at me. I swerved to miss it and almost hit another car head on. I thought it was a big black man with no clothes on. It was real hairy. and looked to be about seven or eight feet tall. Smith said the creature survived the impact and then ran away into the swamp. Police and other authorities took it really seriously and searched the area, but were unable to find the creature. However, state trooper M.E. Johnson, who was first on the scene, described Smith as, quote, Very, very scared and very, very sober. As we usually find with things we talk about on this show, our fear of monsters has a very simple and instinctual explanation. As hunter-gatherers, we were literally hunted by monsters, by creatures that could tear us limb from limb. Humans had to fear hyenas, bears, lions, eagles, snakes, primates, wolves, saber-toothed cats, crocodiles, and sharks, their fixed and glowing eyes barely emerging from the darkness. Interestingly, in non-Western cultures, especially in communities that are untouched by colonialism, children don't protest going to bed the way that they do here. They don't cry and they don't scream for their parents while they worry about bad dreams. Instead, they fall asleep in the same room and sometimes the same bed as one or more of their caregivers, safe and snug instead of vulnerable. In fact, people in other cultures are often shocked at the Western cruelty of leaving a kid alone in the dark. Kids that are still hardwired to fear monsters, to fear the animals that could snap them up in a moment. In this country, we've always seemed to have a deep disdain for the animalistic, for how we perceive the animal world as ravenous, as violent, as out of control, full of beasts that threaten our survival from the dark corners and depths of the world. The control of nature has always been at the heart of colonialism, as has the taming of the animal kingdom, and in turn, the taming of those considered by white supremacy to still be part of that kingdom. 
In this way, we have designated racial others as animals, as less than human, as a missing link between what we were, out of control, uncivilized beasts, and whatever it is we are now, civilized. But no matter how completely colonialism believes it can control nature, the power of this sublime natural world still exists as a wild card monster, potentially delivering natural disasters and diseases we still can't save ourselves from. And deep down, we know it. Throughout the last century, as we covered last season in our episode on drugs, drug laws have again and again called on the same monstrous qualities of black men who are under the influence of drugs. Until you reach the 1980s, when black people on crack and other drugs became the newest iteration of black monsters. Ones that had super strength and an imperviousness to bullets and their children, alleged animalistic crack babies terrorizing their kindergartens, sinking their teeth into the arms of innocent white kids. These stories, too, have been used to recreate slavery in a modern context, passing bigoted drug laws that still disproportionately affect men of color, who now populate our for-profit prisons, essentially enslaved, working for pennies. In 2009, as racist groups continuously attacked Obama, we all heard him called a monkey in an ape. And just last year, Roseanne Barr, a woman I once admired, referred to his former mixed-race aide Valerie Jarrett as looking like she was in Planet of the Apes. Some people don't understand why this was so painful for Black people. What's the big deal? Hopefully this episode has helped justify that deep and painful outrage. The 1933 movie Freaks came at the tail end of the popularity of the freak show in the Depression era, where the only thing booming was the horror movie industry. Audiences were exposed to a narrative that terrified them more than the Frankenstein monster, a narrative of an equally brutal revenge for the pain suffered by the marginalized, a narrative that almost seemed like a direct response to the Jim Crow laws of the time. Like Frankenstein, though the characters in the film were not the racial freaks that we talked about, but instead those with rare physical disabilities. A trapeze artist named Cleopatra betrays the freaks who have accepted her as one of us. She mocks them and later humiliates them. Audiences were frightened as well as angered to see a beautiful blonde girl become disfigured, turned into what they called the human chicken, and a masculine man literally castrated by social others in a pretty satisfying revenge. Fear tingled inside of white America, the way that Nat Turner's revolt once had adults and children alike checking the shadows for rogue slaves. It's possible that they could walk outside the theater after watching Frankenstein or Freaks and see the mortifying reality just across the street, a man lynched in broad daylight and left for all to see. One of us. Confederates would have spit at this statement, disgusted by the assertion that they could be on the same level as black Americans, the way the Melungeons once terrified with the potential of racial impurity. One of us. Progressives could see this as a kind of lovely colorblind statement, a band-aid over the history of searing racism, saviorism that still reminds of the stories of monsters and the open-minded, conscientious heroes who teach them to read, who teach them manners. All the pain and anger of the past generations dissolved through this white mercy, this well-meaning but condescending relationship to black Americans that many of us are still guilty of today. 
But white America, too, was considered monstrous itself from the perspective of those traveling on blood-soaked, dirty slave ships where sexual assault and violence were commonplace and worse than I can bear to say here. The unimaginable brutality made African people believe that they were in the presence of actual monsters, of something inhuman, and their own folklore associated white with death, and they talked of falling into a world of bad spirits. These tales spread from the U.S. back into African villages, where white men were told to be cannibals who would swallow them whole. Faraway fires on distant slave ships added to this fear, and when Africans saw white people drinking red wine, something they'd never seen before, it cast the entire white race as vampiric. They believed that these white men were witches, who in their lore were known most prominently for overconsumption and kidnapping. In the early 1840s, Frederick Douglass, abolition activist and prior slave, also invoked the same kind of metaphors when he called slavery, quote, America's pet monster, saying all our political parties and most of our churches revere what he calls a huge, many-headed abomination. It's true that our imagined monsters come from the dark parts, from the forests, the swamps, the seas, the natural world coming back again to take its prey. But the language of the monstrous exists too as an excuse to control and enslave, to fear and to pity, to make ourselves unmonstrous, civilized, separate, and holy. But America's pet monster isn't dead yet. In fact, we see it hiding in the shadows, in the dark parts. It lives in the long shadow of our prison industrial complex, where we put our modern monsters for simple drug crimes. People that are truly unmonstrous and truly do not deserve to be there. Most terrifyingly, this pet monster also hides in the shadows of ourselves. And that is the fear we all carry, the fear that makes us continuously project onto people we've long exploited as inhuman. Could we ourselves still have this pet monster heaving inside us? Could we ourselves be the monster? It's a fear we have to face. Because the only way to tame this animal, America's pet monster, is to bring it out from the dark parts and into the light. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we're giving you two really special episodes over the next couple weeks. One of them is an interview with yours truly from the Something Scary podcast. It's a little bit of a different show. I'm talking about my ghost experiences, I get a tarot card reading, and I indulge for once in the other side of our reality. The other show we're giving you is an abridged version of our live variety hour, and it's going to have some outrageous corresponding videos on our social media. So if you're not following it now, head over there and follow us. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Assistant produced by Derek Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Commo Studios with help from research assistant Riley Smith. And recorded on location in Seattle at Densmore Studios. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I do encourage all of us, including me, to continue to look for the monsters inside of ourselves. They're there, and that's okay, but we've got to get them out. The monster. We, ourselves, ourselves, ourselves be the monster.
to prey upon the innocence of children. We are the monsters.